Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolfe and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, we're going to be speaking about shaping children's brains. Now, I've got uh, two guests in the studio today, and uh, I'll let you both introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself as well. Yep. Thanks so much, Beth, for having us. We're really pleased to and be speaking with you today. So my name is Sarah Whittle. Um, I'm an associate professor in the psychiatry department at the University of Melbourne. Um, I have a background in psychology, so I'm not a trained clinician um, at all. So I have a research-focused role. Um, yeah, that's me. Is um, Divyangana? Yeah. Hi, I'm Divyangana. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne under Sarah's supervision. And I'm in the third year of my PhD looking at the uh, relationship between the environment and brain development. Right, so what was it that inspired both of you um, to have an interest in child and adolescent development? I think we're we're probably quite similar um, in in our interests, I think, Divyangana and myself. Um, I think just, you know, just knowledge that that what happens to you in your childhood can have such a huge impact on the way you develop and, you know, how you go through life as an adult. Um, yeah, I mean, we know that that it's, it's such a, an important period for, you know, for shaping the rest of your life. Um, so yeah, just kind of wanting to better understand, you know, what are the specific factors that, that shape individuals, um, I guess, with the end goal of, you know, trying to identify factors that we can um, intervene, you know, with um, preventative interventions, um, to essentially to be able to um, better help individuals, particularly with um, mental health issues. Um, yeah. Yeah, and just to echo Sarah, um, obviously so much of um, what we become is through the nurturance and through the environment that we receive as children and adolescents. And during that period, the brain is dynamically developing. It's, you know, very susceptible to changes based on environmental influences. So that's another reason why we really want to look at the child and adolescent period, you know, both from a development, brain development as well as a uh, social angle, yeah. Could you explain what neighbourhood disadvantage is? Yep, yep, sure. So 
Um, it essentially refers to the kind of um, general uh, socioeconomic condition of the neighbourhood that you live in. Um, so in other words, kind of the, the resources that are available to you, um, you know, within, within your community. Um, so, you know, there are a number of things that might um, kind of go into to a neighbourhood and, and what kind of factors into neighbourhood disadvantage and advantage. Um, so it, it can be generally, you know, things like the kind of the average um, income that the families in your neighbourhood have, um, the education of, of the individuals in the neighbourhood, um, but it also reflects things like um, access to good schools, um, access to, you know, good medical care, libraries, um, and then kind of other things like, a you know, a general sense of community or cohesion um, in your neighbourhood. So it, it, I guess it's um, distinct from other socioeconomic factors that are more about, you know, the people in your house, so your own or your parents' um, education and income. So it's kind of a broader concept, um, yeah, thinking about those resources available in your community or neighbourhood. Yeah, and in our specific case for our study, we looked at something called the Area Deprivation Index, or the ADI. This is based on this is based on census data in the United States, and it takes into account like 17 different factors. So things like um, the population below a certain age and above a certain age, what is the unemployment rate, what is the number of people who have uh, beyond a high school degree, the fam median family income, income disparity, home values, mortgage mortgage values and things like that. So there's a whole bunch of different things that go into creating this neighborhood disadvantage measure that we use. Could you tell us about the study that you conducted? Yeah, of course. So in our research, we studied more than 7,500 children aged nine to 10 years from the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study or the ABCD study. It's a large long-term study of brain development and child health in the United States. So this study features children from schools all over the country with lots of diversity in race, ethnicity, education, income levels, as well as living environment. And using this data, we tested whether neighborhood disadvantage, the measure that I just described to you earlier, is associated with changes in the brain's resting state functional connectivity or resting function connectivity. Uh, and this is gotten from, you know, magnetic resonance imaging or MRI scans. So resting state functional connectivity essentially refers to the coordinated activity of different brain regions when someone is resting and thinking of nothing in particular. It's actually quite interesting. So even while we're resting and doing nothing with the eyes closed, we typically see synchronized activity between different brain regions that usually work together to perform functions or tasks. So that is that these brain regions are functionally connected. Like even when they're not being used for any specific thing, they still kind of go up and down together in activity. And that's what functional connectivity refers to, essentially regions talking to each other or communicating with each other. So what we found in our study was that children who grew up in disadvantaged neighborhoods had widespread alterations in functional connectivity in brain regions that are considered important for learning, memory, planning, goal setting, self-reflection, sensory processing language, like a whole bunch of different functions. And what's more, 50% of these brain changes that I just mentioned to you were then in turn associated with poor cognition and mental health in the children. 
So essentially, you know, that was that was a really long explanation. But what we found was that disadvantage is associated with um, the way that lots of different brain regions communicate with each other, and that these changes then probably have consequences for cognition as well as mental health. You mentioned before about the disadvantaged neighbourhoods, and I assume that living in those neighbourhoods would be stressful. So what sort of effect does stress have on the brain? Yeah, so, excuse me, definitely um, we think that, you know, stress is a key mechanism um, whereby neighbourhood disadvantage can affect the brain. Um, so we, we know that stress can ab- affect the brain, um, you know, really dramatically and in a widespread way. Um, and we think that, I mean, we know that this happens via the, um, the body's main stress system um, called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or the HPA axis for short. Um, so this is a, a system... Um, that's triggered by the brain. So we, um, our brains detect um, threat in the environment and then that triggers off this HPA axis um, and it, it culminates in the release of the stress hormone cortisol. Um, and then cortisol can um, obviously affects the body. It kind of puts you into that um, fight or flight uh, mode to deal with that threat in the environment or that stress. Um, but, but cortisol can impact the brain as well. So there are, you know, complex um, feedback loops between the brain and the body. Um, so we know from lots of research that um, stress and this kind of increased exposure to cortisol um, can actually change the, you know, the way our brains develop and the structure and the function of, of the brain. Um, connectivity, um, like Divyangana was mentioning. Um, yeah, so stress can have a really profound impact on the brain. Um, I think something else important to say as well is that with neighbourhood disadvantage, it's not only about kind of being exposed to stress, it's also about not being exposed to the types of things that you should be exposed to or that you need to be exposed to for your brain to develop in the right way. Um, So there's a little bit of both going on with neighbourhood disadvantage Um, Yes, those living in disadvantaged neighbourhoods are probably more likely to experience more stress, um, but they're probably also more likely to not receive the, you know, the appropriate kind of um, experiences um, that our brains need to develop in the right way. Well, what are some of those um, uh, factors that are needed for good development? Yeah, so, so lots of things. I mean, one example might be um, things like books, reading. You know, we need, we need to, to read to kind of develop those, um, you know, language and reading areas of the brain. Um, so that's one, one example. Um, but, yeah, kind of everything. I don't know, Divyanga, if you want to jump in. Yeah, one way that neighborhood disadvantage could can even impact sort of parent-child interactions, you know, because parents may not have the right socializing influences around in the neighborhood if in areas of concentrated disadvantage, and that could impact the way that they interact with the child. And that then changes the semantic and the language input the child is getting. It may change the amount of time they're spending with the child. It may change 
the cognitive stimulation they receive other things in the neighborhood as well like for example um not having access to green spaces and as a child not having access to playgrounds or, or um parks may not allow motor development the right way so it's not just cognition there's a whole host of different things that can be impacted and like sarah was saying books like take it one step further you know disadvantaged neighborhoods are less are less likely to have access to good libraries for example and there therefore the child may receive less stimulation in that way so could you explain about developmental miswiring yeah sure so um developmental miswiring you know uh in the context of our study essentially refers to a deviation from the way that typical functional connectivity develops so to give you an example like i was saying earlier regions that uh, sort of carry out similar functions in the brain tend to communicate with each other even while we're doing nothing right so these regions that communicate with each other uh, and serve similar functions in the body they tend to communicate more and more and more with each other throughout childhood and adolescence so they become more and more functionally connected now with age um this kind of these changes sort of support the normative changes that we see in cognitive development as well as social development and so on and exposure to stress and you know sarah talked about the whole cascade earlier exposure to stress can sort of um how do i put it sort of cause this wiring of the brain to go a bit awry and that's what we call developmental miswiring so sort of not the not the optimal way in the way that regions should communicate with each other so what was the role of buffering factors in your study yeah i guess that was the most interesting part of our study which was um so basically we found that brain alterations that i was talking about earlier all those widespread alterations uh they were less pronounced in children who had positive home and school environment So this suggests that perhaps good parental support and providing children with positive schooling and favorable school environments can buffer some of the negative effects of growing up in a disadvantaged neighborhood. All right. So you mentioned about parental support. Could you explain exactly what parental support is? Yeah, so in our study um we just had access to one particular questionnaire that measured um parental support so it was um a was it a child or adolescent report divyangana or was it parent report i can't remember now we used child report i think child the study report. has both yeah yes yeah so we used um a questionnaire where the children report on um their own parents um so i think the measure tapped into um things like um you know sim- simple kind of things like the the parent telling their child that they love them um the parent being there to supervise and monitor them um divyangana you might want to jump in with the the other elements of the questionnaire and you're more familiar yeah so the more specific measures i mean i guess parental support in general just refers to you know uh sort of warmth and sensitivity and uh, the parent being nice to the child but in our specific case we looked at something uh where the child basically gave us scores on whether or not the parent makes them feel better after talking about their worries with the parent whether the parent smiles at the child often whether the parent is able to make make the child feel better when they're upset whether the parent uh, 
believes in showing his or her love for the child and finally whether the parent is easy to talk to so you know just very kind of more basic um uh questions not 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 a lot but they reflect uh, parent positivity or parental acceptance how do teachers play a role in promoting healthy brain development in children yeah so um you know obviously teachers are super important for the you know academic development of of children and adolescents um and there's of course a you know a brain or a neurodevelopmental um component there where teachers are you know influencing um the appropriate development of of those brain regions that support um those kind of cognitive and academic abilities um but we do also think that teachers you know can play a really important role in um more kind of social and emotional development um and and you know the corresponding um brain development that supports um social and emotional um functioning and and mental health um so you know there hasn't been a lot of research looking at the impact of schools and teachers um on the brain um there's been more so looking at the family environment and how and how you know parenting um and things like that impact the brain um yeah so there's not a lot of research actually looking at the direct um impacts of teachers and schools on the developing brain um but you know we definitely um think that teachers are likely to have a really um important influence you know given that children you know spend so much time in school um and so much time with their their teachers yeah i mean just an interesting fact children spend um close to 15000 hours in school by the time that they actually finish their education so just thinking about i mean especially at that age around 9 or 10 kids are spending most of their time with either their family um a few uh friends here and there and then otherwise school so given the amount of time they spend there the kind of influence they get and the kind of environment they get is very important in you know developing you know just their normal uh, cognitive and social development but in our study uh, we characterized school environment with a couple of different uh, well uh, not in our study we used data from another study that characterized school environment using five or six different questions that the students or children answered and these were based on uh, things like students having chances to help decide things like class activities and rules so having some sort of autonomy in decision making are getting along with their teachers uh then teachers noticing when students do a good job and letting them know that they actually did a good job uh the school letting the kids parents know when the child does a good job um then having lots of chances uh in their school to be involved in sports clubs and other school activities outside of class so this kind of highlights the importance of extracurricular activities beyond academic stuff and finally feeling safe at school and this i guess has a lot of different uh, implications it could have things to do with bullying it could have things to do with the neighborhood they're in like lots of different things that um, safety could imply so was the sex of the child relevant in the study yeah so we did find some um some effects of sex and of the child um so there were some associations present in you know one sex but not the other um although we're quite cautious um about interpreting those findings because 
um, they were what we would call exploratory analyses where we looked at, at whether the sex of the child played a role. Um, so, yeah, so difficult to interpret, but at the same time, we do know that um, brain development is slightly different in male and female children, and that has a lot to do with the role of puberty because we know obviously males and females um, uh, have, you know, different levels of, of, the, of different pubertal hormones and they impact the brain. Um, and there's certainly, you know, quite a bit of other research, you know, both in humans and, um, you know, rodents uh, showing that stress can impact the, the male uh, and the female brain differently. Um, so it's definitely an area that um, I think we need to do a bit more work in. Um, one of the big limitations of the, the study and the sample um, is that, uh, at least from the data that we used, um, you know, we only had this one uh, question about um, sex, uh, you know, male or female. So we, we, we didn't look at kind of any good data on, you know, sex assigned at birth versus gender identity. Um, so we, you know, we took a, quite a, I guess, a limited um, view of, of sex in the study um, just because it was more of an exploratory part of the study. So, yes, sex did seem to play a role, but, you know, we're cautious about um, interpreting those findings without further research. Sure. So what were the conclusions of the study? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the, the first one was just the fact that, you know, the na you know, neighbourhood disadvantage or, you know, the neighbourhoods that children grow up in um, can have, you know, a really significant impact on the brain. Um, as Divyangana said, we found that the, the neighbourhood effects on them were very widespread. So, you know, uh, it, it seems that the neighbourhood has, you know, effect on a, a lot of aspects of, of our brain function. Um, so that was kind of one, one key finding or key take-home. And then the second one, you know, which Divyangana said was, was probably the more interesting and important one is that, you know, we found these um, positive home and school environments can really buffer those effects. So any kind of negative impacts that neighbourhood disadvantage might have on the brain, um, you know, there is um, kind of good news in that, um, you know, it does look like, you know, being exposed to the right kind of environments at home and school can really help those kids that live in in neighbourhood disadvantage and kind of set them back on track, so to speak. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Um, yeah, uh, something I thought about after Sarah's response on uh, how stress impacts the body. Uh, it's actually really interesting to think about that the body's actually, our bodies are responding to stress to actually help us adapt to our environment. So it's something to be mindful of. It's not like stress is just purely doing damage. It's essentially from an evolutionary perspective, it's actually trying to increase our chances of survival. And when you think about it from that perspective, we also, there's something else worth mentioning, which is that not every kid who lives in a disadvantaged neighborhood has negative outcomes. So there are several individuals that perform at par with their peers or you know, even above their peers from more advantaged backgrounds. So there's a lot of, um, there's an idea of resilience there, which is that even though you're exposed to stress or even though you're exposed or less exposed to 
our positive environmental influences uh these can be sort of overcome and that's actually a really interesting area for future research trying to understand markers in individuals that don't really have the the same ne- ne- negative consequences of living in a disadvantaged neighborhood well that's that's really interesting when you you're speaking about resilience and um just just sort of one study that comes to mind is the marshmallow test and when they did that with children and maybe well maybe there's a bit of a connection between resilience or the marshmallow test and it's where children had to wait to have a reward later on not uh, immediate sort of reward so did, did you think I don't know it's a bit of a loose connection I'm thinking of but mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is that sort of along the same lines as is in the study? Yeah, so, I mean, resilience is a really interesting topic and it's, you know, really a kind of multifaceted concept. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, I think in terms of <clears throat> Divyangana's point that, you know, that not everyone that grows up in, in disadvantage is going to have these negative outcomes, you know, may, there are likely, you know, individual differences in a range of things. So it could be one's personality. Um, it could be, you know, the marshmallow tests, like um, kids that are better able to um, delay gratification. So they might have um, better kind of impulse control or kind of cognitive control, we call it, you know, as a result of their personality or genetics or whatever it might be. Um, you know, potentially those kids might be not as at risk because they might be kind of better able to regulate their emotions and regulate their stress response. Um, So kind of, you know, unanswered questions, but I think definitely just in terms of thinking about individual differences and, you know, what are the things in individuals that might, um, you know, kind of render someone more or less sensitive to, you know, being impacted by by the neighbourhood. Yeah, and there's lots of things we didn't measure in this study that could have an impact as well. Like what if you have a really supportive sibling in the absence of a really supportive parent? Or if you have a really good friend group that's a great influence on you or a grandmother? Like there's so many different things that could be impacting child development that we haven't measured in the study. So it's really important to sort of acknowledge that limitation that it's not just your primary caregiver and your uh, school environment that can buffer these effects. There's probably a lot of other things. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Well, it's been a really, really good study that you've done. Do you have any future study plans? Um, yeah, just as Sarah was saying earlier, like very few people have looked at the effects of school environments. So that's something that we really want to sort of um, look into a bit further, uh, kind of uh, tease apart what are the, the specific effects of the school, like positive school environments and brain development. And, um, yeah, I think Sarah might be interested in a couple of other things. Yeah, so certainly one, um, so in this study we just, it was just a cross-sectional analysis. So we are just looking at, you know, brain images from one point in time. Um, and we know, you know, the brain develops and changes so much um, over childhood and adolescence. Um, so, you know, being able to look longitudinally to see how, you know, all of these different environmental influences um, shape brain trajectories by, you know, being, being able to look at changes in the brain over time. Um, so that will be really important, I think. And the, the ABCD study um, where we got our data from, um, it is 
um, conducting MRI scans with the um, children and adolescents in the sample right up to, I think, age 18 or 19. So um, as, as those scans happen and the data is um, released to researchers, we'll be able to look at, at those questions around brain development. Well, thanks for coming onto the program today. It's certainly been very interesting. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. And uh, we've been discussing shaping children's brains. That's all we have time for today. But do stay tuned for Swing and Sway. <laughs>